welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the mainstreaming of cryptocurrency and NFTs by celebrity endorsements, why they're terrible by nearly any metric, and why they're emblematic of our broken culture. Clips today are from Folding Ideas, Wisecrack, Crypto Critics Corner, The Majority Report, Reveal, and the damage report with an additional members-only clip from Scam Economy. In 2008, the economy functionally collapsed. The basic chain reaction was this. Bankers took mortgages and turned them into something they could gamble on. This created a bubble, and then the bubble popped. When you drill down into it, you realize that the core of the crypto ecosystem, the core of Web3, the core of the NFT marketplace, is a turf war between the wealthy and ultra-wealthy. Techno-fetishists who look at people like Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos, billionaires minted via tech industry doors that have now been shut by market calcification, and are looking for a do-over, looking to synthesize a new market where they can be the one to ascend from a merely wealthy programmer to a hyper-wealthy industrialist. It's a catfight between the 5% and the 1%. Ultimately, the driving forces underlying this entire movement are economic disparity. The wealthy and tenuously wealthy are looking for a space that they can dominate, where they can be trendsetters and tastemakers and can seemingly invent value through sheer force of will. This is, in my opinion, the blind spot of many casual critics. The fact that tokens representing ape PFPs are useless, yet somehow still expensive, isn't an overlooked glitch in the system, it's half the point. It's a digital extension of inconvenient fashion. It's a flex and a form of myth-making. And that's how it draws in the bottom. People who feel their opportunities shrinking, who see the system closing around them, who have become isolated by social media and a global pandemic, who feel the future getting smaller. People pressured by the casualization of work as jobs are dissolved into the gig economy and want to believe that escape is just that easy. All you gotta do is bet on the right Discord and you might be airdropped the next new hotness. It could be you plucked out of the crowd on Rarible and bestowed a six-figure price by an elusive Emirati music producer. Get a bake in your wallet, hodl like a good diamond hands, and enjoy that yield. All you need is $5,000 in seed money, and you can buy a Farmer's World milk cow. And if you milk that cow every four hours, day and night for two weeks, why, there's all your money back right there. And now it's pure profit, minus, naturally, the overhead of all the wax you needed to stake, the barn you needed to buy and build, the barley you needed to purchase and grow, the food you needed to buy to refill, the energy you needed to milk the cow, build the barn and grow the barley, plus you actually need to cash out, which isn't getting paid, it's quitting. This is your chance to stick it to Wall Street and the venture capitalists as long as you pay no attention to the VCs behind the curtain. The line can only go up. It's a movement driven in no small part by rage, by people who looked at 2008, who looked at the system as it exists, but concluded that the problems with capitalism were that it didn't provide enough opportunities to be the boot. And that's the pitch. Buy in now, buy in early, and you could be the high-tech future boot. Our systems are breaking or broken, straining under neglect and sabotage, and our leaders seem at best complacent, willing to coast out the collapse. 
We need something better, but a system that turns everyone into petty digital landlords, that distills all interaction into transaction, that determines the value of something by how sellable it is and whether or not it can be gambled on as a fractional token sold via micro-auction, that's not it. A different system does not inherently mean a better system. We replace bad systems with worse ones all the time. We replaced a bad system of work and bosses with a terrible system of apps, gigs, and on-demand labor. So it's not just that I oppose NFTs because the foremost of them are aesthetically vacuous representations of the dead inner lives of the tech and finance bros behind them, it's that they represent the vanguard of a worse system. The whole thing, from open sea fantasies for starving artists to the buy-in for pay-to-earn games, it's the same hollow, exploitative pitch as MLMs. It's Amway, but everywhere you look, people are wearing ugly-ass ape cartoons. So why do celebrity endorsements sell everything from cars to Coors Light so well? Nayer argues that it's because of the phenomenon of transferred celebrity, i.e. the product becomes associated with the qualities of the human celebrity. So let's say it's 2004, you love Britney Spears, and you want everyone to know it and to also associate you with how cool she is. By buying a pair of the Skechers she recently endorsed in the pages of Teen People, you're trying to imbue yourself with as much of Britney's bubblegum charm as you can even if you don't explicitly realize that's what you're doing. Now, Britney is a celebrity in her own right because she's a hard-working triple threat. But if she's out here selling Skechers, she's imbuing it with clout. And those sweet, sweet kicks are reinforcing that clout right back at her. To paraphrase scholar Richard Dyer, celebrities are both labor, i.e. varying combinations of talent, hotness, work ethic, and luck, and the thing that labor produces, i.e. fame and fortune. So it follows that when people with major fan bases endorse a product, not only does the celebrity get more attention in the public eye, but the product itself will see a boost in profits and prestige. What Babe Ruth did for Cola, or Oprah did for Weight Watchers, or Michael Jordan did for Nike, is something the makers of NFTs are ready to harness for a new century. Now, you've seen Justin Bieber somehow make Crocs seem cool, and a water bottle became spiritually rejuvenating because of Jennifer Aniston. But something different happens with crypto and NFTs, which, after all, don't tangibly exist in the real world. Because they're so intangible, these non-fungible tokens are, ironically, very fungible in terms of what they can potentially signify. When Paris endorses them, they're glamorous. When Spike Lee endorses crypto, it's righteous and bold. When Gwyneth Paltrow does it, you're living that crunchy yet chic holistic lifestyle. Crypto, and by extension NFTs, are the perfect empty vessel upon which to project a celebrity's entire affect. And nowadays, there's an NFT-happy celebrity for seemingly every demographic. Even Eric Andre's into it. Who would have thought absurdist comedians even knew about NFTs? But when you're buying an NFT to emulate your favorite celebrity, it's like an even bigger dopamine hit than buying those adorable Spears Skechers. You feel closer to them, and more importantly, more similar to them than ever before. Before, you only had the pleasure of consuming like a celebrity. Now, you have the pleasure of investing like a celebrity. What? Here? High-end! VIP exclusive! That's liable to make you feel richer and more glamorous than, say, drinking a Pepsi at a protest. 
After all, as Nair says, celebrities embody an abstract desire to achieve, to be recognized, to be wealthy. Poverty-stricken celebrities would be hard to find. Celebrities represent what people aspire to be or to possess. And in a world where financial security is anything but easy to come by, emulating the investment choices of an already wealthy celebrity might not seem like the worst option. Now, we're not grumps. If you want to smell like Mariah Carey or buy car insurance like Shaq, have a ball. But there are issues of accountability at stake when celebrities use their power to change our consumption habits. What was supposed to be a historically significant Tiffany & Co. campaign starring Beyonce and Jay-Z got a bit thorny when the 128 karat yellow diamond Beyonce wore turned out to be, for all intents and purposes, a $30 million vintage blood diamond. FYI, Bay and Jay released a statement denouncing the jewelry. Or consider this adorable retro ad of Lucille Ball shilling Chesterfields. So cute. And so cigarettes. And we'll keep our adjectives to ourselves about the results of diet pills and flat tummy teas. And maybe that's why the celeb sensation surrounding NFTs feels so uncomfortable. Diet pills might give you the runs, but NFTs are a different beast altogether. At best, they're too new to fully judge as a major investment, and at worst, by many accounts, they're a pyramid scheme. It's worth noting that celebrity Ben McKenzie, aka Ryan from the OC, is getting attention lately for actually dunking on NFTs. Welcome to the off-chain, bitch. But think about it. When you buy one of Paris Hilton's bedazzled Boss Babe hoodies, you have like a hundred bucks at stake, which isn't nothing, but it probably isn't all of your rent money. But when she essentially recruits you by way of a talk show to buy an NFT, she's doing something else entirely. See, NFT owners have essentially banked on a speculative asset. If Paris wants to see the value of that asset grow, she needs the general public to flood the NFT market with capital, essentially to bolster her major investment. And that's where things get tricky. The allure of feeling like your lifestyle is closer to hers or to any rich and famous persons has the capacity to wreck your finances. And that's what we're seeing unfold with Kim Kardashian's endorsement of Ethereum Max. It's a developing story at the time of this video, but the TLDR is this. Kim uploaded a sponsored Instagram story promoting Ethereum Max right after the company had burned half of their available Bitcoin. That means they put them in an essentially locked crypto wallet where they can't be distributed. That created market scarcity, which drove up the price for people who were eager to buy Ethereum Max after being influenced by Kim's story. She and other famous influencers are currently being sued because Ethereum Max's prices shot up 1300% before totally crashing a month later. The lawsuit alleges that it was a pump and dump scheme. As far as we can tell, the people who bought high watched their big investments basically light on fire in front of their eyes. But in addition to being morally dubious, this whole situation is also just really, really surreal. Think about who Paris Hilton and Kim Kardashian are. Famous people who literally invented their celebrity out of nothing. Or that is, became famous purely by being seen. And here they are endorsing a product that by many estimations is essentially also made up. Is this the most meta thing ever? Maybe. And we think that's best understood through a concept from classical political economy, use value. See, use value, as the name suggests, is a measurement of how an object derives value from its usefulness. This pair of galoshes? 
Great for keeping my feet dry in the rain. This spoon, excellent for shoveling Cheese Whiz into my mouth. Yeah, I, I eat Cheese Whiz with a spoon. Not a barbarian, I don't, put, I don't put cans in my mouth. Everything that humans consider valuable has a use value, going all the way up to actual people. The use value of Zendaya for breaking your heart on screen. The use value of Doja Cat for writing total bangers. And the use value of Serena Williams for changing the game of tennis. When these celebrities endorse things, there are two use values at play. That of the celebrity, i.e. their fame and respective talents, and that of the product, say the beautifying effects of mascara, or the refreshment of some frost arctic blitz. But for celebs like Paris and Kim, their fame is a purely ephemeral commodity, with no obvious use value. Their celebrity isn't linked to tangible talents beyond, you know, sharing really innovative thoughts on work ethic. Get your ass up and work. And this is where things get even more meta. Marxist economics talks about what happens when a commodity's value becomes detached from the actual thing that can be bought, sold, or traded. Like when a pair of Nikes becomes less about helping you avoid ankle sprains and more about what it represents, the fearlessness of Serena Williams. In this way, the commodity essentially becomes a theological entity, something that transcends use value. It's now a spiritual thing with what one German economist called metaphysical subtleties and theological niceties. So we have two things. One, celebrities without use value, or celebrities that have been constructed out of thin air using their clout to push. Two, NFTs which have a use value that's arguably also constructed out of thin air. The whole thing starts to feel like a digital house of cards. If celebrities who have value simply for having value are now pushing digital commodities that also have value simply for having value, it seems like maybe we're all just emperors without any clothes. I think it's really interesting that it's sort of coming to this point where we're sort of on national television on the Super Bowl doing kind of giveaways because in my less like the, the, the world is ending moments in my more positive or less negative, perhaps is a better way of putting it moments. I think of like, well, that can't like I don't think that's going to last forever. Right. Like you do the giveaways and people sign up, but they're only there for a get. They're only there to see if the the chance, you know, the small chance that they could. And the end. And Jacob's point is right. That is sort of casino capitalism personified on some way or, or, or it's exhibit A for that on some level, except color me skeptical that those people are going to put a bunch of money into it. Right. But let's see. It's certainly attacked. Certainly the company thinks it's going to work or they wouldn't do it. And. I am not someone who understands the technology very well. I am not somebody who is particularly sophisticated about about m much of any of it. All I come from is 20 years in Hollywood and kind of knowing the tactics and the, the marketing techniques, which are often to sort of like take something that should be sort of boring, right? It's like you're trading – you know, pieces of, you know, t tokens, these these things called cryptocurrencies through apps on your phone. It doesn't give you like the most – it's not – necessarily particularly inspiring one way or the other but if you if you sell it as like bravery right like you are one of the greats you're marco polo like discovering if you can just 
create an emotional response to something that would otherwise be kind of just a spe speculation, right? You'd just be like gambling. Then you're, you're doing half of the work, right? That's, that's how you get them in the door. And once they're in the door, then, you know, there's money to be made. It's not even the first time that this has happened either. I mean, the dot-com bubble was so rife with day trading and day trading f for the first time becoming a thing. And I think that it's... It's the same thing where you're idolizing someone who's finding it's price discovery. It's literally price discovery. If we're going to boil it down to what it actually is, it's somebody who's like, huh, I think that this price is somewhere between here and here, and I'm going to find out where that is. And there's nothing heroic about that. It just is a thing that people do. It's the same as a ditch digger or like a, a baker. So I like the, there's usefulness to it. There's certainly usefulness to f trying to find the price of something, but it isn't heroic. And a lot of people get hurt trying to do it and being like, I'm going to be the richest person ever. You know, the, the thing that separates this from the dot-com bubble is that the internet was a revolutionary <laughs> technology that really has changed everything, as witnessed by the fact that we're using it right now to record this podcast. But color me skeptical that blockchain is that technology. I'm not saying it couldn't be. And we'll, in the book that we're writing, we will. I, I, it's important to me to leave that door open because I can't predict the future any more than anyone else. But it's it's odd to me that blockchain's been around for so long, that it's this quote-unquote new innovative thing that's been around since at least 1991, and it's uses to like, you know, sell these tokens to each other, um, which, what do they do? What, what, are they, what are they being used for? The only sort of thing that I can see in crypto that seems to provide some, it, there's some use that, that, uh, that can't be uh, accomplished by other means is, is remittances in some limited, very limited targeted way, like Afghanistan or something like that, where the state has completely fallen apart. And obviously, the United States shares a lot of the <laughs> blame for that. And people are desperate. And so they're using it even if, even if um, you know, they're getting gouged in the process, it's better than nothing. I'm nervous that when it falls apart, it falls apart even worse than the dot-com bubble, right? Because in dot-com, it's funny, I was talking to a guy, a friend of mine who's, who's in finance, and he was like, he was making the dot-com comparison. I thought he was going positive. He was actually going negative. He's like, in the dot-com, like, what, like 80, 90% of those companies failed, okay. right? Like, for every Amazon, there were like 20 pets.coms. Yeah, I like think there's no, I, there's no publicly listed stock besides... Amazon that was started before, like in dot com, elect, like that wise. I think Amazon was the only one that made it out. Like even Yahoo, you know, gone. You know, these, these are, it's, uh, it's really hard to make it in a, in a bubble. Also, we got Amazon out of that though, which is like, okay, we can hate Amazon. We can all hate Jeff Bezos. Cool. I get it. Also, what an incredible company. Yeah. And, and so that's why it's hard right now for me. And again, I, I try to approach this with humility. I'm not saying I, there couldn't be. I'm just saying I don't know what company comes out of this crypto phase that we're in when – and I've started reading a lot of – you know, there's a great book, uh, The Future of Money, uh, Eswar Prasad's book on uh, uh, cryptocurrencies and CBDCs and like the future of sort of where money is heading. And in the book, which came out last year, he, he, he talks a lot about sort of specific use cases, how it's being used, certain sort of positive things you could say about cryptos, but also addresses full on, you know, a lot of the negative stuff, including the fraud. And recently he was doing a publicity 
tour to warn people that even if you believe in blockchain's uses in the future or in some sort of um, digital currency situation, that doesn't mean this this market couldn't crash because what use does it have if it's replaced by something that is issued by the state, which money has always been issued by the state, right? Any effective use of money. So uh, I just – that's where I get worried, right? Because I don't even know what, what company would be the Amazon, right? I mean they all want to be, right? It would be FTX. It would be Binance. It would be you know Coinbase. But like I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm and that skeptical. even in and of itself kind of undermines <laughs> – the whole decentralized idea. Right, of, the of course. Whole, yeah, yeah. yeah, to point out yet another contradiction <laughs> in them. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and I love the future of money, too, because to me, it's like, well, it's also the past of money. Right. right. It's private. It's private money. Yeah. That's, that's from the 19th century. <laughs> like, that's not the future, bro. That's the past. And, and we, we, when we moved on from it. Because it didn't work. It's been a joke in the crypto skeptic community for the last several years, which is that cryptocurrency is speedrunning the last 2,000 years of financial failures. And so right now we've got major wildcat banks running around. You've got private monies. You've got outright just Ponzi schemes that don't even lie about being Ponzi schemes anymore. And yeah, it's just uh, striking because I agree that there is utility and censorship resistance and there's value in certain uses of cryptocurrencies, but so much of the market as it exists now is circular and self-referential and built around speculation and trying to fuel that speculation. Today's episode is sponsored by Bombas, and their mission is simple, to make the most comfortable clothes ever and match every item sold with an equal item donated. So when you buy Bombas, you're also giving to someone in need. From the very beginning, they've been focused on building a business that does good. They started by selling socks with a buy one, donate one model, specifically because socks were the most requested items at homeless shelters. And now it turns out that t-shirts and underwear are numbers two and three on that list, and so they have expanded accordingly. And they haven't just been resting on their innovative business model, they've continued to innovate on their clothes as well. Everything they make is soft, made from materials like merino wool, pima cotton, and even cashmere, and sport features like being tagless, having invisible seams, and are calibrated to be the perfect weight. So far, Bomba's customers like you have helped donate over 50 million items of essential clothing, so go to bombas.com slash best and get 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash best for 20% off. Bombas.com slash best. A lot of this just feels like this is a direct function of wealth inequality in the world. And just people with just like, I've got my, whatever it is, my 10 million, my 50 million, my, I've got the extra billion and I'm going to see if I can turn that into 30 billion by just like investing in this and seeing if enough people bite. I mean, that's why, like, I wonder if, um, you know, if there is this crash, if it doesn't just reinflate almost immediately because there's there's so much money concentrated in so few hands now it feels like in the context of this country but also i think you know sort of worldwide that there's always going to be somebody in there who's going to be like i can reinflate this this market tomorrow and everybody will come back in and then i'll just get out and i don't know 6 weeks 6 months 6 years or whatever it is 
Yeah, I, I think even if this all crashes uh, and, and people lose a lot of money, including I think a lot of everyday retail traders who maybe can't afford to lose a few thousand dollars or something like that, we'll see another version of again probably really soon. Um, for example, I, I think some people are going to simply blame the government or some other outside force, especially if the government has a role in kind of popping this bubble, which I don't know how much enforcement they're going to actually do. Um, but I think you're just going to see other people say, we need to do it better this time. Uh, and that does stem from the economic conditions in this country, which is sort of a lot of inequality and uh, really a form of casino capitalism where gambling feels like one of the main ways to get ahead. I mean, of course, I talk about this stuff all the time. So that influences what ads I see. But on Twitter, I pretty much only see ads for crypto and for sports gambling, which is now legal and everywhere in New York. And I think those are sort of products of the same economic conditions, which is just that, I mean, I don't know how else I'm going to transcend my economic conditions. I'm going to throw some money down the latest speculative fervor, and maybe I'll be one of the lucky ones. Yeah, I mean, there really is a, a Sam, I like sports gambling, so that's why he's looking <laughs> at me. But I, I really don't bet that much. It's more for fun, um, not to defend myself all the time. But, no, I'm not anti-gambling. If you can, if you know the risks, that I think that's fine. Yeah. At the same time, I mean, I, I am interested in it as a as a manifest you call it casino capitalism in your piece and you just said it there but it really is just late stage capitalism is it not i mean there is a mass desire from people to understandably so knock down the door of this like uh palace of capital that is accessible to only certain people and um it's kind of this false promise of democratization where it's like, I mean, you know, the Gatsby green light or whatever that you can never reach it. And, and it's, I mean, we've established, it's become an established way um, or I guess a socially acceptable way to scam people. And, And that seems like that, you know, I don't know. That's a business model that goes hand in hand with gambling and like with the other uh, scams like Theranos or Firefest that have have uh, dominated the news cycle over the past few years. Yeah, we, we argue that we live in sort of a golden age of fraud. We're not the first to the term, but that economic conditions combined with sort of a, a general uh, tolerance for more risk, perhaps, and and lack of enforcement from authorities and, and a number of other things that have contributed to this kind of uh, rampant forms of fraud. White-collar criminals seem to be getting away with it. They get Netflix series. They don't go to jail. Uh, or maybe they'll go to jail and get the Netflix series. But uh, And I think, you know, crypto isn't necessarily inherently fraudulent, but it's very well suited for it. And it attracts both technologically and it attracts a lot of people with experience in fraud. So I can't tell you the number of people who I've talked to who have said they've been scammed, many of whom remain true believers in this stuff. But it, it really is endemic, despite what some people might want to think. What What do the scams look like? I mean, I've heard stories. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I've I, I know like I've heard stories almost almost, almost firsthand of like <clears throat> a friend of mine's brother was like walking their dog in like a L.A. dog park, and somebody came up and gave them a, said like I'm giving out like a hundred grand in 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 some type of crypto as a way of jumpstarting it in some fashion. I mean, it wasn't actually didn't turn into a hundred grand until other people were convinced it was worth a hundred grand. I don't. And then I think it just all sort of like, like dissipated. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the VC money, right? Somebody's just coming in and say, can we turn this into, can you turn this million into 10 million? And well, the way we do it is by 
getting some people seem to be like um mavens or uh you know uh to to go out and so what but what do the scams look like well the i mean the general model is similar to what you were just re- describing which is basically mlm and there are different ways in which that's achieved but uh in terms of specific scams there are things called rug pulls which are basically that the leader of a project will just abscond with all the money uh, which is a lot easier to do when a lot of these people are anonymous especially in the world of DeFi or decentralized finance this happens with NFT collections too. Maybe people prepay or they, they buy in the beginning and they're promised, again, a lot of features or, or future access. And then the, the leader just disappears. That's a very common one. Um, pump and coordinated pump and dumps in which, you know, insiders are cashing in. Uh, I, you know, I, I'm working on a story. It's, it's a bit of a difficult one, but of a, of a pretty major uh, crypto company scamming its own employees, basically lying about compensation and involves tokens and other things. But, um, you know, because some people are getting paid in tokens. So there, there are many varieties. A lot of them are sort of twists on traditional financial scams. And there are a lot of hacks, people clicking on the wrong link. Uh, security is a major issue. But I think the, the constant here is that risk always devolves onto the individual in the crypto economy. And when something goes wrong, you're mostly out of luck, even if it happens on Coinbase or one of these big exchanges. Uh, and it's a lot of, you know, one of the mottos of crypto is D-Y-O-R, do your own research. And some of the people I talk to say, oh, I was scammed, but, you know, I didn't really research the person enough. It's kind of on me. I, I just, I hear that all the time. Hmm. And, there, and, the, and, the re- and, to, and to be clear, the reason why this is uh, so susceptible to scamming is the the anonymity is built into the system. So, you know, as opposed to a situation where it's like, hey, uh, send me uh, $4,000, write the check just to cash. I would be like, hey, wait a second. Why am I writing it to cash? Why don't I write it to your name? In this instance, it's like, write to cash because that's the whole system. That's the way the whole system works. So there's no way to differentiate. There's no way to do that research really on a person at the end of the day because the anonymity and the idea that like that's a feature not a bug of all this is that like we can take this cash and just run away and no one will know and that's the whole point of it yeah i mean recently there was a story about a guy working on a a very prominent he was the treasurer actually a very prominent uh DeFi protocol meaning he, he basically controlled hundreds of millions of dollars uh worth of of crypto on behalf of people who had staked money and things like that and he went under this name sifu well, of course, not his real name, of course. And then it, he was recently unmasked as one of the co-founders of Quadriga, which was a, a crypto exchange, which in sort of typical fashion collapsed uh, when the, the founders, including him, absconded with all this money. So he just came back under another pseudonym and got very involved in a very lucrative uh, crypto project. So you see that kind of thing a lot. There's just, you know, an essential part of kind of doing business and even securities laws is disclosure. And uh, both disclosure of who you're dealing with, where's money going, and also sometimes what kind of risks are involved. And you just don't see that anywhere here besides the lack of enforcement and lack of political governments. Uh, So it's really easy to just kind of get around the most basic checks. Well, do do your own research, too, right, is is difficult when a lot of the material out there is written by people who have a ton of crypto in stake. Like, I mean... I have a friend that was I'm listening to this podcast. I should think I should buy some crypto. Look it up. Oh, that person, you know, is very intimately involved in this current kind of cryptocurrency and has a huge investment in 
other people buying crypto so this yes. so that that their the their stakes and uh, prices inflated i mean and we're talking about crypto scams and and you know what constitutes a crypto scam i mean i'll just say say it isn't the entirety of it all just a big scam in and of itself isn't it just a i would mass say so multi-level marketing scheme Exactly. I'm glad you you got back to the multi-level marketing thing, because I think that's what we're talking about, which is your friend, just out of self-interest, needs you to buy in to pump their own bag, as they say in the industry, to, you know, it's a rising tide lifts all boats situation. They may want you to buy their currency or the one they're invested in, that's best. But really, there aren't a lot of incentives to ask tough questions in this industry. I think there are some good journalists, but also there's a lot of cheerleading. There's a lot of false information, outright disinformation. So people don't really want to hear the bad news or start asking how much underlying values they're here. It's just hype and celebrity endorsements, more ads, keep pushing, keep shilling, because eventually, you know, line go up or number go up is a meme in the industry. This is all just about ensuring that number go up. I'll show you what a, a miner is. what a cryptocurrency mine sounds like. What makes all the noise? The fans on the miners. There's two fans on each miner. Some have four fans on each miner. Inside the storage container, we're looking at floor-to-ceiling metal shelves crammed with computers the size of toaster ovens. Hundreds of them. They only do Bitcoin mining. That's what they specialize in. They're not used for anything other than Bitcoin. Before a new group or block of transactions is added to Bitcoin's blockchain, those specialized computers around the globe compete to solve a complex math problem. Every 10 minutes, there is a race amongst Bitcoin miners to solve a mathematical proof. The computers that solve the problem first get to add the latest transaction to the blockchain, and they get a reward. And if we do it before anybody else does it, we are paid in Bitcoin for processing that transaction. If we lose that race, we're not paid. But even those losers use up a lot of power. And critics say that's incredibly wasteful. Fred disagrees. It's the expenditure of energy and effort that causes this to be such a secure network. The more successful Bitcoin becomes, the more energy it will use. Even early pioneers of Bitcoin realized this could eventually become a climate change problem. Back in January 2009, Hal Finney received the first ever Bitcoin transaction and briefly ran the cryptocurrency. Days after its launch, he tweeted, thinking about how to reduce CO2 emissions from a widespread Bitcoin implementation. Back at the Kearney mining operation, both the computers and the fans that cool them use a lot of electricity. Compute North's Dave Peril says other mining facilities use air conditioning to keep the machines from overheating. If we did use air conditioning, we would use up twice as much power or have half as much computing power going on here as we do today. The scale of these Bitcoin hotels is getting bigger as the industry booms. Dave says the secret sauce is tracking down lots of cheap power. We're always trying to match, you know, what is probably one of the fastest moving sectors in the world, which is cryptocurrencies, blockchain, digital assets, with one of the most conservative, slowest moving, which is the energy construct. And we kind of play in the middle of that. 
In Kearney, Dave found eager partners. Stan Klaus is the mayor. He's also the local representative of the electric company, Nebraska Public Power District. He jumped at the chance to bring Compute North to Kearney. Did you know what cryptocurrency was at the time? I didn't. I'm still not all that overly familiar with it. Why did you think cryptocurrency might be good for Nebraska? Because I was looking at it from the power perspective and the revenue that could be generated off the power and what you could do with that revenue. That's where my focus was. Because I knew it wasn't going to be a lot of jobs. I asked him how many jobs, and he says just 10. But the city expected to get money another way. Carney gets a share of all electric bills, and Stan knew Compute North would be a whopper of a bill. Besides, Carney had lost out on a bid to host a Facebook data center and was looking to bring businesses to its tech park. Stan takes me to the new substation his power company is building for Compute North. So we're walking on a gravel road. There's a lot of big, tall metal towers that look like, imagine, the trunks of big, mature trees that will be holding the equipment for the substation. And it's muddy. We watch workers in a cherry picker four stories above us. They're just putting up steel and electrical components for the substation. This substation cost Nebraska Public Power District $23 million, a quarter of its annual budget for capital expenses. This is a huge project. So if it weren't for Compute North, is there any chance your company would be building this huge new substation here? No chance. They left nothing to chance. Here's how it worked. The power company, city, and local economic development council all pitched in to sweeten the deal and get Compute North to come to Kearney. The council paid for the land and gifted it to Compute North. The power company not only brought in temporary substations while building this new one... We also have have given um, Compute North a discounted rate. So you're giving them a discount because they use a lot of power, Right. right? Do you know what it would be without the discount? Oh, it would probably be doubled, but the reality is they may not be here if that drove their cost structure too high. If we got greedy, none of this would be here. The city makes Compute North Steel even sweeter. Normally, Kearney gets 12% of everyone's electric bill, but the city offered Compute North a deal. It would keep only 6%. That meant in 2021, for example, the city kept $1 million from Compute North, instead of more than $2 million. So they're getting discounts all around. They, they are, and it's not a permanent uh, situation. That low electricity rate lasts for five years. By then, Compute North would have gotten tens of millions of dollars as an incentive to use enormous amounts of power. Now we're struggling with climate change. Are you at all worried that you basically just doubled the amount of electricity you use and that could have no, an impact on climate we, change? I, I believe that we were looking more at what our capacity was, our unused capacity. We are generating revenue for our city that wouldn't be here but for this project. And that revenue helps our community to grow and, and keep our property taxes down and allows us to do the things in our community that's a benefit to all. But experts I talked to said encouraging companies to gobble up lots more power is not a benefit to all. One of them published a study that shows Bitcoin already has used enough power to erase all the energy savings from electric cars. 
I got in touch with a bunch of economists, scientists, and environmentalists, and they all agreed with Professor Camila Mora from the University of Hawaii. Using scads of power for cryptocurrency could sabotage our fight against climate change. I asked Compute North CEO Dave Perrell about what they said. So they don't think it's moral to use energy the way you are right out there. What do you think about that? I think most folks that make that argument uh, don't fully understand one of two things. It's, it's either you know the value that Bitcoin and blockchain and crypto bring or the way that power networks, distribution networks, and the grids work. How big a concern is climate change for you personally? I mean, I think it's front and center. I got three little kids. They're six, three, and, and nine months. And if I felt that I was sitting here just burning up the environment and, and being a bad citizen and leaving my kids to a worse world, I wouldn't do it. But I fundamentally believe computing can be done much more cost-effectively and much more environmentally friendly. I was talking to your electric company, and they said that you asked them a lot for the lowest rate possible, but that you didn't ask them for renewables. Well, we're on grid here, so we don't necessarily have an option of what's getting put on the generation side. Um, we, you know, we looked at their grid, we looked at their mix, and we love the carbon-free element of you know, 65%. Most of that 65% is from nuclear power, which has a different pollution problem, nuclear waste. Other big industrial plants are demanding renewable power, and the Nebraska Power Company is trying to get them what they want. In Kearney, there's a solar farm right next door to Compute North. That power was used by the city, but now those clean electrons flow to Dave's operation. About 12% of the electricity in the U.S. comes from solar and wind. So scientists and environmentalists warn, if cryptocurrency miners siphon off what little clean energy we have, the rest of us will end up using dirtier sources of energy. And as Bitcoin gets more popular, its energy use will surge. Dave tells me his company needs more electricity fast. Compute North just got $385 million from its backers and expects to expand a lot this year. Well, 15 to 20x our company, once again. I mean, it's, it's significant, significant growth. So you're saying you'll be 15 to 20 times larger than you are now? That's accurate. The pace is part of the fun. And that pace is picking up. Dave can't wait for new wind farms or solar arrays to be built, so he's taking advantage of existing plants, including one that runs on natural gas. Natural gas emits a lot of carbon dioxide and also methane, a much more potent greenhouse gas. All across the country, Bitcoin miners are plugging in. No place more than Texas. A Bitcoin mine there will use about as much power as 150,000 Texas homes. In Pennsylvania, a company called Talon Energy is building a cryptocurrency mine at a nuclear plant. An electric utility in Missouri started mining its own Bitcoin last year. And here's the really terrifying part in terms of climate change. Fossil fuel plants that had either closed down or were about to are firing up to power new Bitcoin operations. The Bitcoin mine has grown, and so has the plant's greenhouse gas footprint. I got the state to release the power plant's reports to me. They show the plant's annual carbon dioxide emissions ballooned. 
from 80,000 tons in 2020 to more than 750,000 tons in 2021. That's as much carbon dioxide as about 150,000 cars. Ann Hedges, the Montana environmental leader, is furious. It's just a few rich people who are going to get rich at the expense of everybody else. Um, I feel like it's people saying, well, you know, a few can have champagne while the rest of you go hungry. We're not in a place where we have that kind of excess power available for something that is just a, you know, a get rich quick scheme. Sorry, that's, I just, I really hate it. (laughs) I hate cryptocurrency. I hate it. Anne worries that other coal plants headed for retirement will be resurrected to mint Bitcoin. And it's already happening in Pennsylvania. One company is using the waste from decades of coal mining to power thousands of supercomputers running nonstop to create Bitcoin. But the power burning waste coal is even dirtier than burning regular coal. And Pennsylvania subsidizes it. That plant and the hardened operation in Montana are some of the most glaring examples of old, dirty fuel being used to make what supporters hope will become the currency of the future. You talk about this a little bit in the video. There is the perception that they, in the crypto world, I think, very much try to create through advertising and that sort of thing that uh, this is a world that is objectively good, that will objectively make you money. And if you are not an enthusiastic part of it, it's because you just don't get it. There's something you're missing. Because there's so much terminology, I thought, what if I am just missing something? What do you what do you think about that? Um, I mean, there that's absolutely like you're you're absolutely correct about that being a deliberate construct. So two things that I would point at would be the Matt Damon ad for crypto.com, which is very (laughs) much like you're a coward if you don't engage with crypto. And then you've got the uh, TYX um, uh, Larry David ad from the Super Bowl, which is, Mm -hmm. are you a big enough coward to buy crypto? And it's hinging like that ad and that second ad in particular is directly hinging on that like you know oh well you probably just don't get it like you know the entire ad for people who aren't familiar with it is like Larry David brushing off the wheel brushing off all of these like you know world altering uh uh inventions and then the last one is of course like a crypto exchange that's like eh, mm-hmm. it's probably no big deal and so yeah they're very much playing off of that like well if you don't get it it's just because like you know, or like if you think it's dumb, it's because you just don't you just don't get it and you're better off suppressing that instinct, you know, because like what if you're suppressing like what if what if you're poo-pooing the wheel? What if you're poo-pooing computers as a as a broad concept? Um and so it's very much using those psychological trigger points. Yeah. You know, let's dive into that because you, at various points throughout the video, you acknowledge some positive things or uh, about cryptocurrency. You uh, will like give credit where credit is due on some of the claims that they make about some specific resistances to um, like hacks and things like that. So when they imply that it is the next big thing, um, is there a case to be made? And and if not. Is it something that could be 
like with a little bit of work, with a little bit of rethinking, no, there's really something there. It might be filled with scams and all that now, and it might be exploitative now and speculative now, but we could get there. Is that future possible? How do you see that working out? So that's a complicated topic because as with a lot of things, as with a lot of scams, as with a lot of destructive social forces, they do tend to at least hinge on some real problem. They do tend to acknowledge some real problem or or leverage like a, a social anxiety, leverage a financial anxiety that people have. And so there is that there is some level of intersection with real problems. And just through like the, the laws of big numbers, um, statistical average, some aspect of all of this will do something meaningful to address something that's a real problem. So it's like, so if you compartmentalize very aggressively, you can find things within crypto that are addressing like, okay, this one specific person benefited uh, and and was able to like change their life because they got this big payout because they gambled on a crypto project and it paid off. Um, but the the trap there is that you could say the same thing about like, oh, well, gambling on uh lottery tickets it's think of all of the good that comes out of gambling on lottery tickets because like look at this one specific person mm -hmm. who it paid off for and i think you would be hard like you can talk about like well okay the money from from like state lotteries goes into all of these other programs and so if you wanted to put a lot of effort into it you could paint a picture of like state lotteries as this like boon for society but if we take a like nice big step back we can just ask ourselves like is a state lottery the best way of actually addressing those problems and fixing those problems and that's where i sit with crypto is that is it the next big thing i don't think so like i i'm I'm skeptical of it on a couple different levels. One, I think technologically it's just too garbage um, to really like work or even necessarily be fixed. Two, I think it's culturally has some like very, very deeply toxic elements that tie into um, really socially destructive political ideas. Um, and so I don't think it's just this like, uh, I don't think it's just a matter of like, well, it really needs some elbow grease and polish and somebody <laughs> just needs to get in there and clean it up. And maybe we just need to tweak a couple things in, you know, to incentivize better behavior. Because yeah. I think the like one of the things that I really realized in working on this was that the the like arch philosophy of crypto is real bad. And the like the crypto utopia is to me a nightmare. Um, mm -hmm. If they won on their own terms, that's the the resulting society is a nightmare. Yeah, and I, I appreciate that part of the video too, because I, I don't think a lot of people, again, big walls, uh, keeping regular people out of this topic, get that there is a philosophy or that that crypto is really trying to do anything other than be a technology that 
you point out that it is effectively envisioning a world where literally everything is a financial transaction. Everything is assigned some sort of value. You speculate on literally everything. That is not just a technological development. That is a radical rethinking of the relationship between individuals and organizations. And I don't think most people get that from Matt Damon, you know, yeah. insulting them and saying they're not brave and enough. I referenced Marshall McLuhan in the video, and I kind of wish that I had gone even harder on that because he's got a great quote that it is so often that the that the content of a medium blinds us to the character of the medium itself. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a case here. Crypto is so big and so complex that it's just like it's psychologically easy and tempting to just like compartmentalize to only yeah. focus on like well why are you so like why are you so against nfts they're just a generic content format and it's like well no they're not they're a they're a medium that has a character and they're part of a bigger medium which is cryptocurrency itself which also has a character it is a political invention it exists for political purposes and you know and that needs to be respected and addressed i am not into this i'm very worried about the scams i'm worried about people being driven by our economic system feeling like there are fewer and fewer avenues for accruing wealth over time it leads yeah. to desperation yeah. get rich quick schemes and this seems Legit, it's not like you know, like get rich via real estate scams of a decade or two ago. People seem to not get that that's what's going on right now. So, tell me a little bit about the community, why it is so so primed to be scammed. Like psychologically, what is going on with these individuals and groups? So it's a the complexity, the obtuseness. These all sort of feed into myth making about like if you get it, you get it. If you've bought in, then you're in a special clade. You're you're a unique, special snowflake. You know, smart boy, big brain who who understands the future. Um, and that that level of like intense flattery um, is is blinding, and it makes people who buy the flattery very very vulnerable to um, not being appropriately skeptical of the things that they're then engaging with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And a lot of the people, you know, like you you already referenced it that like desperation leads to people taking irrational actions and an expression of that is just this whole um willingness to believe. Mhm. Mm you know there's so many things in our society that that hinge on these same psychological uh trigger points that hinge on these same tactics the same you know rhetoric the same myth making the same flattery uh the same anxieties uh and the best inoculant against it is just is sane and just social policy that if people have secure housing if they're not terrified of their financial future, if they're not worried that uh, medical debt is going to just destroy their family, uh, if they're not looking at their student loans and going like, oh, okay, so this is going to take me three lifetimes to pay off. 
then that's the best inoculant against um, this kind of like financial predation. We've just heard clips today starting with folding ideas on their video Line Goes Up, pointing out that bad systems are replaced with worse systems all the time. Wisecrack broke down celebrity endorsements entering the world of crypto and NFTs. The Crypto Critics Corner explained the circular speculation market of crypto, which is being stoked by celebrities. The Majority Report discussed why scams are such an inherent part of crypto. Reveal looked at the excessive power consumption of crypto miners, and the Damage Report spoke with the creator of the Folding Ideas video, Line Goes Up, about the psychological triggers that blind people to the scams of crypto and push an insular mindset of those who get it and those who don't to ward off any criticism of crypto. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard a bonus clip from Scam Economy explaining what happens when the crypto grift descended upon Ukraine. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com slash support, or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now I have a personal story to tell about getting scammed. And I think that there are lessons to be pulled from this. Obviously, this is not a proud story. No one's proud to tell a story about getting scammed. Uh, Luckily for me, this happened a long time ago. But it was one of the dumbest ones. I had to look it up to remember what this scam was exactly. But it was from the pretty early days of the internet. I'm Pretty sure I was still using an AOL email address, for instance, to to give you a sense of, you know, the very early 2000s, probably this was. And it was a email pyramid scheme scam that and like if I if I try to describe it to you, I'll probably get a detail wrong and it will sound ridiculous. And you'll think, how does anyone fall for that? But that's part of the point of the story. So the idea was that there was a, you know, obviously they don't, they don't describe it as a pyramid, but there's a pyramid of people on a list and there's an exchange of cash through the mail. I mean, this is, I think this predates PayPal maybe. So you're sending like $5 bills in the mail. It was a very low buy-in. I think, you know, I got scammed for 25 bucks or something like that. So the idea was you send like a $5 bill to five different people. And when they receive your $5 bill, they send you an email with more details about how to more effectively send emails out and perpetuate this whole cycle. And then your name ends up on the list where other people end up sending you money. And so I I fell for this because, and I remember sort of what I thought about it really distinctly. I didn't think I understand how this works perfectly. And this makes perfect sense. I didn't think that (laughs) I remember what I thought was, well, I'm not sure how this works, 
the buy-in is really low. I mean, 25 bucks, even back then for me, you know, it wasn't nothing, but it was okay. I was like, look, if this doesn't work out, no big deal. But if it does work out, hey, it might, you know, be interesting. So the, the low buy-in was key. And then also, um, as I said, it's not that I knew how it worked and knew it was a good idea. What I remember thinking was, I cannot figure out why this wouldn't work. Sort of a double negative reasoning for, I guess this seems like it makes sense because I'm not smart enough to figure out how it doesn't make sense. And once I figured out why it didn't make sense, which I don't know how long it took, maybe, you know, a week or two and sort of had an epiphany, but the details sort of became more clear with time as I learned, you know, more instances of the the difficult math of large numbers is that people have a really hard time conceptualizing extremely large numbers that are actually finite. So like the number of people on the planet is extremely large, but it is also extremely finite. And th- this came into really stark relief back in the Bush era when they were passing the Patriot Act and they were saying, don't worry, like we're going to be collecting all your metadata from your phone calls and your texts, but don't worry, it's just metadata. We're not going to be listening into your calls, which turned out, you know, depending on uh, circumstances to not necessarily be true. But they said, look, like, I mean, metadata, like, don't even worry about it. Why would you even mind if we had your metadata? And then beyond that, If we have a reason to suspect someone, then we're going to dive a little bit deeper. So we're going to dive deep on the person we suspect, but then we're going to dive deep on all of their friends and their friends' friends, and then maybe their friends' friends' friends, but that's it. Like, that's really all we're going to do. And the problem is that when you take, you know, you start with one person and you get all of their friends and then their friends' friends and then their friends' friends' friends, that's like 3 billion people. And the math of how that works out is ridiculous, and I'm talking off the top of my head, so you'd have to go look it up for yourself. But it really is. I mean, you you, you say, like, we're going to narrowly focus our search on, on just these people, and it sounds small in our heads, but the way the math works out, it's, it's literally like millions of people, at least, uh, possibly billions, that could theoretically be caught up. In the, in the net. So anyway, humans don't understand how to conceptualize big numbers. And so the problem with pyramid schemes is that you think to yourself, well, there's always going to be someone else I could find to be down the line. I have this thing described to me. I, you know, I just need to send out five bucks to five different people. And then I just need to find a, a handful of other people to do the same. And that shouldn't be that hard. But the problem with pyramid schemes is that you only need to go, you know, from the very top level when the pyramid starts to then level two, three, four, five, six, seven. Like you only need to get to about level seven before you've exceeded the number of people on the planet. So that is why pyramid schemes fail, because there's not an infinite number of dupes to buy in down the line. If there were an infinite number of people, well, then maybe pyramid schemes would be a perfectly legitimate you know, economic device, but it's not. That's why it's a, a scam. And so I tell this story. I mean, partly it's you know embarrassing and unfortunate, but I was young and silly. But, but the lesson, I think, is 
about not what I was sure of, but what I couldn't figure out. The crypto thing is following such the same pattern as was described in this show that there's a lot of encouragement that this is probably going to be great for you. And there's a lot of confusion about why might it not? And it's such a complicated thing. I mean, cryptocurrency is only a million times more complicated than, you know, a, a $5 in an envelope email pyramid scheme. And so for people to think to themselves, I may not be a hundred percent sure about all the details and then understand why it's definitely going to work, but it's sort of the reverse. Like I can't figure out why this won't work. And sort of the key takeaway that I, I wanted to make it now because I'm not sure it got hit hard enough in the show today is that the way cryptocurrencies work because they are not a viable currency for exchanging for goods and services. That was sort of the dream of what they would become. And they clearly have not become that you can't go to the store and whip out a card or your phone and pay for your groceries with your cryptocurrency. You, you just can't. And you wouldn't because they're so volatile that they keep going up or, you know, maybe down, but like enough of them go up that people are hoarding and holding on to their currency. And that volatility encourages that behavior. So anyway, they're not a viable mainstream currency. And what that leaves them as is a speculative asset. And the only way to make money after purchasing a speculative asset is to find someone else later who is going to pay you more than you paid. And the short way of saying that is that you're looking for someone dumber than you. You might have been dumb to buy it, but you won't have been dumb if you can find someone dumber. And they won't have been dumb if they in turn can find someone dumber also. And if there were an infinite number of people in this trading economy then that might be a perfectly legitimate economic system. I don't really understand why it would be, but it doesn't matter because there aren't an infinite number of people to play that game. And so someone is always going to get stuck with the cryptocurrency and they're not going to be able to sell it for more than they bought it. So someone's going to end up losing. That is why it is like a pyramid scheme. And that is where the money comes from. When I received that email and it was like, ah, oh, you know, send 25 bucks to, you know, $5 to five different people. I remember thinking like, I don't understand why this doesn't work because I couldn't understand sort of the math of sort of the exponential growth of pyramids. But I remember thinking, I don't understand where the money comes from. I understand that it's sort of flowing up the line, but is it being generated? How is, like, I remember thinking, you know, I was like, I don't know, 18 or 19 or something. And I remember thinking like, I don't understand where this money is coming from, but it seems like it's going to come from somewhere. And then it turned out it came from me. Oh, that's where, it, oh, the 95% of people on the bottom of the pyramid sending the money up to the top 5% of the pyramid. Oh, that's where the money comes from. Now I get it. So it may have been embarrassing, but 
I was really glad that I learned the lesson at 19 and not 35, and that I learned it by losing $25 and not $25,000 or some such, buying into some scheme because I didn't understand the dynamics involved. So all in all, for having learned that lesson, maybe I really did get my money's worth. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Scott, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic design webmastering and bonus show co-hosting and thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com slash support through our patreon page or from right inside the apple podcast app membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes all through your regular podcast player by the way the most recent episode of our bonus episodes for members uh, has a lot to do with shame. And I definitely think there is a, an enormous element of shame in the scam economy because when a person gets scammed, the biggest thing they feel is shame and embarrassment, myself included. I mean, I've gotten over it over the last 20 years, but I definitely felt embarrassed and shameful that I fell for that pyramid scheme. And so when people fall for the crypto scheme and they get scammed, and as was talked about in today's episode, when they fall for it, they blame themselves, not the system. And that absolutely sort of dovetails with the shame machine that we discuss in the bonus episode because it is such an important self-defense mechanism for ourselves to reduce our personal shame. And and I think that, you know, there's two ways you can go about it when, when you get scammed is blame anyone other than yourself. And the other is, nope, like there was nothing wrong with the system, but I didn't follow the good advice of doing your own research and, you know, whatever the case may be. And so you end up defending the system that screwed you sort of like a whatever doesn't kill me makes me stronger sort of a mentality. And either way you go, you end up helping the system. If you don't admit to being scammed, then you allow the scam to continue uncriticized. And if you get scammed and say, no, you know what? It wasn't the system. It was me. I should have just done better. But I'm taking it like a strong person and, and and facing up to it to sort of protect one's ego and feel like you're coming out stronger. In either scenario, you're letting the scam off the hook, the systemic scam. You're letting it off the hook by taking on the blame and internalizing it yourself in one way or another. So anyway, members, check out that episode about the shame machine. We, we don't discuss crypto at all, but uh, as I said, I think it dovetails well. Anyway, coming to you from outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.